Isaiah 40. I just want you to know that I feel great up here, but if you do not feel great, then please go inside and uh, cool off for a second. That's okay to do. Thank you, Isaiah. All right, so we are in Isaiah chapter 40, and uh, I want to begin with a little review. Last week we began by recognizing that Isaiah, Isaiah's message is, has become one of comfort. Out of the blue, there comes this message of comfort from Isaiah. God is bringing a message of comfort for his people. And isn't it nice to hear on a hot sunny day like this that God has comfort for us? Listen to these words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. We said last week, and I'll briefly review this, that chapters 1 through 39 was a message instructing God's people that God was bigger than all the other nations. And therefore they are to trust in God. And he warned them that if they do not trust in him, that God will bring judgment upon them. He said, trust in me and be saved or judgment will fall on you. But now the message has dramatically changed, right? To that of comfort. And so we ask, why has the message changed? Why is it now moved from warning to comfort? And I want to remind you that Isaiah is speaking to a people 150 years uh, ahead of himself. He is speaking to those who are in exile. He's speaking to those who have felt the weight of their sin. We said this last week that from the moment they get up to the moment they go to bed, they would have constant reminders of their sin and of the fact that God had brought them under judgment. They had been humbled. God's work has had its effect on them. They felt the weight of their sin. And that's exactly what God was doing. He was humbling his people bringing them to their knees. And now they needed to know that God had not forgotten them, that God loved them, that God cared for them, and that God was going to save them. Does this have anything to do with you and me? And I want to remind you that we are exiles. Just like God's people were kicked out of the promised land that God had given to them, so we were kicked out of the promised land. We were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. We were kicked out of God's presence. We are exiles. We are not at home. We are not where we belong. And one of the reasons why God's comfort doesn't mean much to us is because we don't feel the fact that we are not at home yet. We don't feel the discomfort from our sin. We don't feel the weight of the problem that is upon us. And we have become at home in this world. And so the comfort of God doesn't often mean that much to us. But we are exiles and our citizenship is in heaven. And God has not forgotten us. He cares for us. So the question is this, where is comfort found? And there's a type of comfort, obviously, from the deliverance from Babylon that God's people would have felt. That's a type of comfort. But there's a much greater comfort that comes from the ultimate deliverance that comes from Jesus Christ. And this is the good news of the gospel. And this is what chapters 20 through 66 
40 through 66 is going to tell us. Comfort, comfort. It's going to expound on it. And the first chapter, chapter 40, is going to be the introduction to the next 26 chapters of comfort. Last week we looked at how the good news of comfort is this. That God has come to deliver his people by forgiving their sins. In verses 2 through 5. We said that the greatest problem in the world, the greatest problem in the world is sin. There is no greater problem from sin than sin. And why is that? Because sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from all that is good and glorious and loving. Sin separates us from God. There's nothing worse than that. You know, a broken boiler, a broken pool, a broken arm, those things are inconsequential. Those things are nothing. Those things matter not at all. But what this does mean is that our greatest need is the forgiveness of our sins. If this is taken care of, then every problem is taken care of. If our sins are forgiven, then we have no problems ultimately in this world. If God is for you, then who can be against you? That's what Paul said. If God is for you, then all things are working together for your good. Not only can no one stand against you, but all things are working for your good. That means everything, even the bad things, are working for your good. So there is no greater comfort than to hear the good news that God has come to deliver his people from their sins. We did this last week in verse 2. That her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received the Lord double for all her sins. God says her sins are forgiven. <laughs> it's amazing. We are told that this, is, this deliverance from sin will come about in an unexplained way. In chapter 53, we'll find out more. Through the arrival of God himself in all his glory. He is coming, and we see that in verses 3 through 5. What an amazing thought. And when he comes, he will humble the, the proud, and he will lift up the humble. He'll bring salvation to the humble, and he'll crush the proud. And he'll show them that they are as far from heaven as you can be. <laughs> And then we will see his glory, and we see his glory on the cross, don't we? All flesh will see his glory. It's through the cross that the manifestation of all the glory of God is most clearly seen by man. The, the greatness of all his attributes shine forth through the cross. And we see what true glory is in a way we could never have seen outside of that. And today we see that the good news of the gospel of comfort is not to be found in the transient undependable flesh of man, but in the enduring and the unfading and the dependable word of God. And we see that in verse 6 through 8. Notice here that God's messengers get their message from God himself. A voice says cry in verse 6. And I said, what shall I cry? The prophet is being commanded to say something. All right, That's what prophets do, don't they? Prophets don't come up with their own message. Prophets speak what God has called them to speak. In fact, every messenger of God who is truly from God doesn't say what they want to say. They say what God tells them to say. And so what a great response. He is just acting as a prophet. He says, what shall I cry out? God, what is your command? And so that's exactly what a prophet does. That's exactly what a messenger says. And the messenger of God does not speak their own opinions. They don't look at the polls. They don't look at what people want to hear. They don't look at, at their own feelings. They don't say, well, this must be from God. I feel really good about it. Right? They don't go by their feelings, whether good or bad. They go by God's word. 
The question is, is it accurate? Is it from God or not? And I had to read this from Jeremiah 20 verses 7 through 9. We would not have had a message from Jeremiah if he had not spoken what God told him to speak, regardless of people's opinions and regardless of his feelings. Listen to this. O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. We say, poor me, right? (laughs) The gospel is so hard. Listen to Jeremiah. For whenever I speak, I cry out. I shout violence and destruction. He was a contemporary of the exile. And so he was preaching the judgment that was coming. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot. He can't speak otherwise, but man, is this a hard message. The message of comfort that God's messengers cry out is first to expose the transient, undependable nature of the flesh, which does not appear that comforting, does it? What a comforting message. Listen to the comforting message God has to give. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. This this isn't very popular today, is it? (laughs) This isn't very comforting sounding. But what does God have to say about the nature of man? Is it flattering? He compares man to grass and the flower. Like grass, you wither, you're transient, you're momentary, you're fragile, you're momentary. Have you noticed this recently with the grass around us? That it's turning brown. It's turning yellow. My grass in my yard is brownish. It's dying. And, uh, and, and that's exactly what we're seeing here. That's us. That's our lives. We're dying. We're momentary. We're passing. We're fleeting. And just like that is the way we are, says God. Your life will be over in a blink of an eye. You know, if I live 70, 80, or 90 years, I will look back and think, that was quick. That was over really quick. Unbelievable. Even a long life is short. We are transient, we are weak, we are dependent, we are temporal. And some of us are absolutely feeling it right now. Your strength is failing, and every day you get up, you feel it. And also, you are like a flower. Your beauty is fading. Now, the word here for beauty or glory is hesed, which is the word used for God's covenant faithfulness, his dependable, his loyal love for his people, his his special or unique love for his people. And the question is, why would that word be used here? And it is likely referring to loyalty and dependability. And the point is likely that he's saying, that we are not only fragile and physically passing away, but we're morally undependable. We're morally um, um, not loyal. We owe God and we owe people loyalty. We owe them devotion. We owe them faithfulness. But that is so lacking. We are not the way we're supposed to be. Man is morally unreliable, untrustworthy, and undependable. Who among us can say we have been faithful to God as we should have been? None of us can say that. So put these two thoughts together, and this is the picture of man. Life is short, and he doesn't live it all that well. (laughs) 
Job expresses this thought in chapter 14, verse 1. Man is born of woman, his days are few and full of trouble. And then notice what it says about God, that he breathes on us. He breathes on us, and what happens? We wither and die. God is sovereign. God gives us every moment, every hour, every day of our lives. He has determined it. He has pre-appointed it. We will not have one more moment than God gives to us. God kills and God makes alive. The Bible clearly says that. And this is the same breath that created the world in Genesis 1 verse 2. It's the same breath that takes it. And breath can mean spirit or breathing. And I think both are supposed to be understood here. This is depressing because it appears to cut off every comfort from this world. It appears to cut off everything that we tend to find our comfort in. It's saying here that nothing can comfort you. Nothing can save you. Everything is very temporary. Oh, for a moment, it might look pretty comforting. It might look like it's doing pretty good. But in the long run, it will lead to absolutely no comfort. It has nothing to really bring to you. It is devastating for all of those who find our comfort chiefly in this world. The Babylonians, Assyrians, the flesh cannot bring comfort. The business guru, the financial advisor, the government, Fox News, CNN, cannot bring comfort. It might be for a short time, but you won't find it there. And this is the point. The glory of man cannot bring comfort. So do you find your comfort in the fading glory of man? Let me warn you, it won't last. This is a good reminder not to trust in voices or messengers who claim to be from God, but do not speak the truth of the nature of man. Do not trust them. They're not from God. The health and wealth messengers of this world can't bring comfort. They will fail you. They will make you feel really good about yourself. They will give you a self-esteem boost, but there will be no comfort for you. You can't find comfort in that message. You will never turn to God for salvation. And this is why God brings it this way. This is why God brings comfort this way. This is the only way to find comfort, by the way. The only way to find comfort is by discouraging us and ourselves. Could it be that the best way to bring out the greatness of the true comfort is to contrast it with what we are often tempted to trust in? The contrast between the nature of man and the word of God is intended to bring out the greatness of the comfort that we can only find in God. And this is the only way we're going to see the greatness of the comfort is if we compare it to what we often trust in. We see with our eyes all around us all these things and they are so tempting. They are so tempting to find comfort in. But God wants us to look by faith and to see the truth. And that's what God's word is all about. So God contrasts man's nature with the nature of the word of God when he says, but the word of our God will stand forever. What does this mean? What does it mean that the word of God will stand forever? It means that although flesh is transient and uh, changing and temporal, God's word is not transient. God's word is not changing. God's word is not temporal. It is eternal. It is the opposite of man and his nature. And you, you question, you say, how is this so? How can you say that the word of God is eternal like this? We see God himself is eternal. God himself is unchanging. His nature is that he is unchanging and eternal. He does not lie. Everything he says will come to pass. And that's because his nature is that way. 
If God is unchanging, if God is eternal, then so is his word an extension of himself. And it doesn't change and it never fails. It is always true just as God is. And what we see in the word of God is an extension of God's will. It's an extension of God's very own words in his mind for us. Does that make us think different of the word of God? Does that mean something whenever we look at the word of God? Does that make us want to honor it and cherish it and love it and treasure it? If we have faith, we will. And we will hold it in high esteem. God speaks his eternal, unchanging word and decree in the word of God. What he says will be accomplished and what he says will come to pass. If it is from God, it's true. Numbers 23, 19 says this. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 19. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This means, this means, get this, this is glorious, that the only place to find comfort, the only place we could ever find real lasting comfort is in the words of God. There's no other place. Everything else is a dead end. God has spoken the words of life to us. God has spoken comfort to our souls. Where else would we go? You know, it reminds me of Jeremiah. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hold themselves cisterns that cannot contain water. Isn't that sick? That is the reality of our sin. So how does this happen? How does the word of God give us comfort? Well, salvation comes by faith in the finished work of Christ. In Christ alone are we saved. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This means that no one will ever be saved apart from hearing the words of God. God's word points me from myself. Listen, if you keep hearing someone preach and you feel like, I don't feel really good about myself, they're probably doing the right thing. God points us away from ourselves. We are fallen. We are wretched creatures. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Is that true? Or is that song to be thrown out because it's not nice? Is it not nice to call us wretches? Or is that what God's word says? We are the problem if we have problems with preachers who are telling us that we are wretches. Because that's what the word of God says. God's word points us away from ourselves. It tells me that I have a sin and rebellion problem. It says that that's the only problem I have. It turns my attention to God and the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ where forgiveness and the promises of God are found. And we see that Jesus is the answer and his work on the cross is the only means to have our sins forgiven. And so this is the reliable and unchanging word of God. And so we flee to the cross. We flee to Christ. We abandon all other things and we run to him and find salvation. We repent and turn to Christ. And this is exactly what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, verse 23-25. Notice if you hear something familiar in these words. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. What is perishable seed? The flesh, right? Through the living and abiding word of God. How is it that we are born again? Through the living and abiding word of God. Now listen to how he supports his argument. For all flesh is like grass. And all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. 
What we are saying is what Peter says right here. That all flesh is perishable seed. It's perishable, but the word of God endures forever. Do you remember in John 6 when everyone was leaving Jesus because he had some really difficult things to say? He said this, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And you can see this in John 6, verse 35 through 39. And the reason this was so hard to take was not just because, I mean, if anyone says you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, that's hard. But not just because of that, because what Jesus was claiming to be. He was claiming to be the bread of life. He was claiming to be the one that you have to eat of him to have life. You have to believe in him to have life. Jesus was claiming to be the only source of salvation. And the people recognized what he was saying. They understood that he was claiming something that was incredible and incomprehensible for them. And Jesus said this in verse 63 of John chapter 6. It is the spirit who gives life. Listen, the flesh is no help at all. The words that have spoken to you are spirit in our life. The flesh is of no help at all. That's what we're saying here. But the spirit, the words that he speaks to you are life. Then in verse 66, we are told, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus asked his disciples, do you want to go away as well? So I have a question for you. Is Jesus a bad speaker? He could have said things easier. He could have invited them a little better. He could have been a little more encouraging to them. He could have been a little softer and gone a little slower, right? Was Jesus a bad speaker? Should he have been more clear? Well, the problem here is not clarity, is it? They understand what he's saying. But it says here that many of them left. So getting crowds is not an indication that he's spoken the right thing, is it, necessarily? Or else Jesus was a bad speaker. In verse 68 through 69, listen to what, listen to what Peter says to Jesus' question, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He gets it. He understands what we're saying here. Here are the words of eternal life. That's the words of comfort. And Peter gets it. And Jesus has been saying exactly what he means to say. And everyone who gets it will say, I will follow you no matter what you say and no matter where you go. <laughs> because there's nowhere else to find comfort but in your words. You don't have to manipulate or twist arms to get people to come to church when it is the word of God and they understand what it means. Is this surprising to you that God chooses to save through his words? That the God who spoke the world into existence is the God who speaks us back to life through his word? One of the many witnesses to the supernatural nature of God's word is the fact that it has literally endured the test of time. What else has preserved so long and so well through many, so many adversaries at such a great cost as God's word? There is nothing less than God's own, own name that can give a credit to that. It is only God who has done that. He has preserved supernaturally his word for us today. I heard of a French philosopher, a deist named Voltaire, who was an adamant opponent to the faith. In 1776, he promised, 100 years from my day, there will be not a Bible on earth. 1776, he said, in 100 years, there won't be one Bible on the earth. How did he do? Did he do a good job? 
He committed himself to ridding the world of God's word. Listen to this. Ironically, only 58 years after his death, his very own printing press was used to print numerous copies of the word of God. And his house was used to store Bibles and gospel tracts. Who won? (laughs) Who won? When you take it up with God, God always wins. And he has shown us that throughout time. So what are you going to do with the few days that you have on earth? What are you going to do? We don't really have a lot of time, do we? We've got to number our days. We've got to use wisdom. Where does God's word of comfort fit into your plans? We have more Bibles than we know what to do with, and that's not a bad thing. In 2 Timothy, Paul, who had no Bible, apparently, for a short amount of time, but he probably had in his mind, said, bring me my parchments when in jail on death's row, which probably meant, bring me my Bible. That's what he wanted. I remember as a little kid hearing that God's word was from God. And I remember thinking, what else would I want to do more than read God's word? So I read through the Bible from beginning to end. I didn't want to miss anything. And oh, how I wish that was always true of my life. Because that is sadly not always true. And I often forget the reality of God's word and the greatness of it. Even when I'm reading it. How many of us claim to be Christians, meaning that our primary comfort is from the gospel. That's what it means to be a Christian, by the way. To be a Christian means that your primary comfort is the gospel and yet deny it completely by our habits in life. To claim to be a Christian and to not find your chief comfort in the gospel is to live a contradiction. And yet many of us who claim to be Christians are strangers to God's word and read it once a week on Sundays. We eat a lot, we entertain ourselves a lot, we exercise a lot, but God's word is on the outside and the peripheral. We must ask who are we really? We believe that the Bible is truly God's word. If that is true, then we will crave the comfort of God's word as a, ba- as a baby would their own mother's milk. First Peter 2 verse 2 says this, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. Is that your life? Are you asking God to help you to crave for his word? Sometimes we don't crave it, but we know we need it. And we ask God, help me to long for it. How many, like many of the disciples that left Jesus in John 6, show our true colors when the word of God becomes difficult for us. When people don't want to hear something, they often go in God's word, they often go to experts. They go to pastors. They go to theologians who wrote books, to counselors, to psychologists, who tell them what they want to hear that is contrary to God's word. You know, if you really want to find it, you will find some supposed expert of God out there who supposedly knows God's word, who's going to agree with you. So be careful in finding what you want to believe because you want to believe it. You will find it. Let us not be fools of ourselves. Instead, if you believe the Bible is truly God's word of life, then you will follow it, you will find life in it, and you will find comfort in it. You will say what Peter says, where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In Matthew 7 verse 24, Jesus said this of those who find comfort in his word. He who hears these things and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And what happened when the rain and the difficulties came? They had the comfort of knowing that their house would stand at all. That nothing could take apart their house. And that is true of all who find their comfort in God's word and are living by it and trusting in it. 
If you're finding your comfort from God's word, then you should be able and want to give the truth of where comfort is found to confused and dying and comfortless world. Has there ever been a better time than now to speak to the world of where comfort is found? Every comfort in the world is falling apart. And I say, praise God. Praise God because it gives us an opportunity to speak comfort to it. It gives us an opportunity to speak in a way that they might listen and they might hear when they find that everything else is falling apart. We are seeing the chaos of every answer that the world has. And we have a great opportunity to speak the word of our God, the creator of all things, the answers, because God has spoken to us. Yet to my own discouragement, and maybe you've seen this as well, especially through Facebook, how many so-called Christians are giving unchristian worldly answers contradicting the very word of God that they claim to believe in and claim to follow. If you claim to know God, please make sure you study his word before you try to give answers. Make sure you know what God says before you try to speak into the world. Instead of having your worldview shaped by Fox News, CNN, Facebook, Oprah Winfrey, or something else, you need to be conformed to the word of God. If we're to find comfort and speak the truth of where comfort is found to the world around us, then we must make sure we know what God has to say. It should be the food, the meat that sustains us. You should find your comfort in his words. You should be nourished by it. The true gospel will always bring comfort to our souls. Where else will you go? There is a story from D.A. Carson that we will close with that I think illustrates the problem that we often have, the problem that I often have. A lady named Lillian Guild and her husband were driving along and happened to notice a late model Cadillac with its hood up, parked at the side of the road. Its driver appeared somewhat perplexed and agitated. Miss Guild and her husband pulled over to see if they could offer assistance. The stranded driver hastily and somewhat sheepishly explained that he had known when he left home that he was rather low on fuel. But he had been in a great hurry to get to an important business meeting so he had not taken time to fill up his tank. The Cadillac needed nothing more than refueling. The guilds happened to have a spare gallon of fuel with them, so they emptied it into the thirsty Cadillac and told the other driver of a service station a few miles down the road. Thanking them profusely, he sped off. Twelve miles or so later, they saw the same car, hood up, stranded at the side of the road. The same driver, no less bemused than the first time and even more agitated, was pathetically grateful when they pulled over again. You guessed it, he was in such a hurry for his business meeting that he decided to skip the service station and press on in the dim hope that the gallon he had received would take him to his destination. What do you think of such a person? We say, that guy does not, is not thinking. He's foolish. Well, how foolish are we when we do not read the words of life? and expect to live for God and to have answers and to have comfort in this world. Let us make it a priority to find our comfort every day from the message of the enduring word of God. Don't leave the house until you are comforted in God's word or you will find it somewhere else. And let us give this comfort as the answer to the problems of the dying and fading world that we see around us. Let us be equipped 
to speak into this world of chaos, that there is comfort, that there is salvation to be found in one place. It's not in the flesh, but in God. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you. Thank you for crushing us today. Thank you for bringing us to our knees. Thank you for reminding us, Lord, that we are a fallen people. Lord, that our minds are corrupted and that we have come up with a billion different ways to find comfort. And every one of them leads to death and destruction and judgment. But Lord, I thank you that you have spoken the truth, God, that you've showed us the truth of all these comforts that we hope in. And you've shown us that there's only one comfort that can be found, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears up today. I pray you open up our eyes. Give us the ability to think straight, perhaps for the first time in our lives. Lord, break down the barriers in our eyes that are blinding us, where we are in futility trying to build up comfort in this world. And Lord, may we rest ourselves completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. May we trust in a risen Savior who has already showed us that he has conquered the grave, that he has conquered every enemy through your own work. And God, may we cling fast to you, for you who promised are faithful. And God, we thank you for your word of salvation today. May we live by your word. May we comfort ourselves in your word. And may we not be afraid to speak, even if the world, um, even if the world treats us badly. May we not be afraid to speak the truth to the world around us. Because we know that we will endure no matter what happens to us. And your word is true. In Jesus' name, amen.